February 2nd, 2014. Rain pounds against the windows of the Baptist Health Hospital in Elizabethtown, Kentucky. The sky is quickly darkening as clouds settle, and the rain melts the snow to slush. In one room of the hospital, the curtains have already been closed for the night. Doctors know that the patient in there has only hours left to live. The man lying in this room is 60-year-old Larry Sherrard. His niece, Pamela, sits next to him, chatting trivially to distract him from the pain. As he listens to her comforting voice, his chest wheezes loudly, rattling his lungs and throat. His whole body aches to breathe. Sherrard's dying of aspiration pneumonia and knows that any of these painful breaths could be his last. But as an elderly, frail man with few living relatives, he's made peace with death and welcomes it as one might an old friend. Then, interrupting his calmness, Sherrard sees the small golden crucifix hanging from Pamela's neck. He feels his own too, the cold metal pressing against his skin. The Christian symbols are suddenly too much for Sherrard to bear as guilt consumes his body. Having been brought up in a strictly religious household, they remind him of the dreadful destiny that awaits those who sin. Sherrard urgently whispers to Pamela to stop talking. He needs to confess to crimes that will most certainly send him to hell before he dies. With pain, Sherrard takes Pamela back to the 1980s, an era he remembers for its drugs, violence, and crime. But his secrets from that period are far more sinister than Pamela could ever have imagined. In 1988 and 1989, Sherrard killed two men and has been able to escape justice for over two decades. Without hesitating, he explains how he killed his victims. Both men were shot in the head at point-blank range. He buried the first in a cave and discarded the second in a hole underneath his house. But perhaps due to his age, Sherrard forgets their names. They screwed me on my drugs, and I screwed them. Sherrard admits simply. These will be the last words he ever speaks before slipping into a coma. Pamela's stunned. She's always regarded her frail uncle as a kind, loyal man. The thought of him killing two men is horrifying. What she doesn't know is that Larry Sherrard has a very dark past one that he has carefully hidden from his family for years. His final words will set off a remarkable series of events and force police to open not one, but two cases that have long gone cold. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chest from murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups. This show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Larry Sherrard, the dark secrets he admitted moments before his death. 
It's about a violent man who mercilessly took two lives. A young drug dealer who disappeared after falling in with the wrong crowd. A horrific discovery made by explorers when searching a cave. It's about the dangerous lives of Kentucky's notorious criminals. An unknown drug dealer whose remains decayed under a house for 20 years. And it's about the monumental police investigation that the dying man's final words began. I'm Estefania Hakeman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Introducing Batiste's wet-activated and touch-activated dry shampoo. With breakthrough technology that absorbs oil and releases bursts of fragrance whenever you sweat or touch your hair for up to 24 hours, it's the ultimate hair care for girls on the go. Try the newest dry shampoo that's activated by you. Batiste, the future of hair care is here. Buy Batiste dry shampoo online or in-store at your nearest retailer. Larry Sherrard is born in Elizabethtown, Kentucky in 1954. He's part of a large family with two older brothers and three sisters. The family are brought up as Christians and regularly visit their local church where they're taught to respect the lessons of the Bible and the value of family. Little more is known about Sherrard's early life. As an adult, he gets a job in the family plumbing business. Sherrard's plumbing, heating, and air conditioning. He works in his father's company alongside his two brothers. But Sherrard's ambition doesn't lie in plumbing. Before long, he grows bored of his job and is tempted by a very different career path. Elizabethtown's crime scene. So Sherrard quickly ditches the family business and begins taking part in petty theft, gang violence, and drugs. As Sherrard grows, so do his crimes. He builds up a network of associates and fellow criminals whose days are spent either causing havoc around Elizabethtown or sulking behind bars at the county jail. This dangerous life is a far cry from his religious upbringings. As his numerous brothers and sisters settle down with partners and begin young families, Sherrard makes a name for himself as a violent, aggressive criminal. But in 1980s Elizabethtown, the police believe they have more important things to worry about than Sherrard's string of drug crimes. They'll turn their backs on the man they view as a petty thief, 
focusing all their attention on the news-dominating criminal who's just begun to terrorize their town. Elizabethtown, known locally as E-Town, is a place of change and development in the 1980s. Due to its industrial growth, it swells in size. New businesses pop up in the surrounding area, and families begin moving away from the center. Suddenly, the once small central Kentucky town becomes more of an urban sprawl. Situated between Nashville and Louisville on the newly constructed Interstate 65, hundreds of outsiders travel right through the town each day. But it's this new accessibility that has grabbed the attention of Elizabethtown's police force. Along with commuters, money, business, and tourism, Interstate 65 has brought a deadly murderer the I-65 killer. In February 1987, Elizabethtown police receive a call from guests staying at the Super 8 motel. The lobby's in disarray with furniture upturned, windows smashed, and not a member of staff in sight. When the police arrive, they find evidence of a physical struggle between two people. Further investigations lead them to the dead body of a night clerk lying face down behind a trash can. She's been sexually assaulted and fatally shot. An immediate investigation is opened, but it produces few results. The DNA on her body fails to match with police suspects, so they simply keep it on file in the hope that new evidence will arise. The hunt for the killer completely overwhelms Kentucky police. As dead bodies trail him up the northern portion of the Interstate 65 from Kentucky to Indiana, they spend thousands of dollars and hundreds of hours of manpower trying to hunt him down. But while Kentucky police are prowling the interstate for one serial killer, they completely overlook the beginnings of a new killer from within their own state. It's under this convenient cover that Larry Sherrard will find and murder his first victim. Thomas Michael Jefferson Jones Jr., or TJ to his friends, is born in Elizabethtown in 1957. Little is known about his life until, like Sherrard, he becomes heavily involved in drugs and crime. Throughout the early 1980s, TJ enjoys the reckless and irresponsible life of a young criminal. He hangs out with experienced drug dealers, learns to intimidate local shop owners to get what he wants, and lives with no respect or fear for the law. But unlike Sherrard, who's reliably surrounded by fellow criminals and henchmen, TJ prefers to work alone. Perhaps because of this, he makes sure to carve a fearsome image for himself. He becomes renowned for his lack of remorse and empathy. He's his own boss who takes orders from no one. In TJ's life, the only person that matters is himself. He's known to trick clients, drop out of deals, charge obscene prices, practices which make him the enemy of some of Elizabethtown's most dangerous residents, including Larry Sherrard. November 1987. It's a cold, dark evening in Elizabethtown as the temperature plummets to freezing and residents rush inside for refuge from the weather. On the less reputable side of town, the back of a small bar is filled with celebrations of victory. 
TJ has spent his afternoon playing a tense poker game with a handful of other Elizabethtown criminals. After hours of concentration and dealings of illegal money, TJ finally emerges as the winner. He collects his cash from around the table, eagerly counting the winnings and smiling greedily when he reaches the total cost, $250. But not everyone's happy with TJ's victory. You see, as a drug dealer known for cheating his way out of agreements and exploiting anyone he can, there are few people who are glad to see him win more money. Indifferent to their annoyance, TJ struts around the small room, declaring his invincibility on an unwelcome victory lap. But as he does so, tensions rise. A few of his fellow gamblers clench their fists, feeling their anger boil over. Then, as TJ reaches to grab his coat and leave, a fist slams against his head and knocks him immediately to the ground. TJ's precious winnings fly from his grasp and litter the floor around him. But as he struggles to push himself up and collect the scattered bills, a second punch knocks him down again. TJ cries out in pain and his arms reach for a nearby chair which he desperately holds above his head as a shield. A fight fueled by vengeance, jealousy, and frustration breaks out as TJ tries in vain to defend himself against the angry gamblers. Knuckles smash out teeth, fists pound heads, shirts are torn, blood is spilled, until finally TJ's on the floor showing no signs of movement. One of the gamblers kneels beside him to check he's alive. It wasn't their intention to kill TJ. Finding his battered body still breathing, the crowd begins to leave. They're satisfied with their treatment of a criminal who tricked so many and only ever thought of himself. They walk up the stairs and out of the door, leaving an unconscious TJ lying in a pool of his own blood. It's TJ's sister, Emma, who finds him a few hours later. She was expecting him to join her for dinner later that evening and grew worried when he hadn't shown up. Aware of his criminal reputation and reckless lifestyle, she perhaps expected the worst, so she braved the cold November air to find her brother. Emma gently helps TJ to his feet and guides him slowly out of the bar. His memory's fuzzy from being knocked out, and he's in too much pain to move without her help. But by now accustomed to the rough life of crime, he assures his sister there's nothing to worry about. She only needs to look at him to tell he's lying. His face is a mask of blood and bruises, and each step causes him to wince in pain. In frustration, she pleads with her brother to abandon his dangerous lifestyle. She begs him to watch his back, as well as the types of people he hangs around with. But TJ's unsympathetic to her worries. He'll be fine, he tells her. He knows what he's doing. Perhaps if TJ had taken his sister's concerns more seriously, the events of May 14th, 1988, would never have occurred. But, fueled by his criminal success and young arrogance, TJ ignores her pleas and sentences himself to his own premature death. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. May 7th, 1988. TJ leaves the Elizabethtown County Jail and welcomes the warm sun on his face as the Kentucky town transitions from spring into summer. It's unclear what TJ was in jail for this time. He only served a few weeks, so we can presume it was one of his usual offenses, petty theft, physical violence, or maybe even drug-related. Upon release, TJ resumes his usual crime-funded life. He preys on inexperienced drug users, hangs out with dealers, intimidates locals, and parties through the night on illegal substances. His social life is fearless, vibrant, and unafraid. But among all of the partying, drug-taking, and money-making, TJ makes a fatal error when he strikes a deal with Larry Sherrard. Not much information is known about this deal. It was certainly drug-related. Sherrard made this clear in his confession. But we do not know the ways in which the deal collapsed, Perhaps TJ never showed up with the drugs, or maybe charged too high a price for poor substances. Whatever he did leaves Sherrard bitter, resentful, and willing to do anything to get revenge. May 14th, 1988. Sherrard steps out of his van into the warm afternoon sun and walks to the passenger door. He flings it open and grabs TJ, who stumbles out clumsily. He's been kidnapped and blindfolded by Sherrard and has lost all sense of orientation. Unbeknown to TJ, Sherrard has driven to Eastview, a small town within Hardin County, just 17 miles outside of Elizabethtown. Sherrard has traveled here with three other criminals. Their assistance is vital to the success of his plan. But Sherrard and his gang aren't alone. A few residents of Eastview are out walking with their families and picnicking in the sun. Not wanting to draw attention, Sherrard quickly rips the blindfold off TJ. Perhaps aware that Sherrard is armed, or realizing that he's outnumbered four to one, TJ obediently follows the men down the off-road track and away from the safety of the nearby town. The men continue walking for a few minutes until they're out of sight from any onlookers. Fields stretch around them in all directions, and a short way ahead lies a crumbling cave. Sherard grabs TJ and pulls him close. He demands to know what happened to their agreement. Spitting at TJ, he threatens to kill him if he doesn't make up for the failed deal. TJ is perhaps irritated, but not surprised. He's dealt with angry men like this before. It's simply part of the business. But Sherard's serious in his threat. He pushes him and orders an explanation. It's not known how TJ responds, but whatever he says angers Sherrard immensely. Sherrard takes out his 25 caliber pistol with one hand and holds the struggling TJ in his other. With a pistol flattened against TJ's temple, he pulls the trigger 
and shoots. Without even waiting for the smoke to clear, he pulls and shoots again. The deathly gunshots echo from the cave ahead of the men and fill their ears with what they've done. TJ's body falls limply in Sherard's arms, weighing him down. He yells at two of the men to go back to the van and bring him the equipment they'd brought to dispose of the body. Moments later, two of Sherard's men reappear, carrying a tightly rolled carpet on their shoulders. They place it on the ground and roll it around TJ's bleeding body, wrapping him up tightly. Too heavy to carry on their shoulders now, the men push their mummified victim along the dusty track. TJ's dead body is abandoned at the back of the nearby cave, surrounded by crumbling rocks, falling debris, and sinister shadows cast by the setting sun. He's laid to rest. Although TJ is missed by his young wife and sister when he doesn't return home that night, they don't worry immediately. They're both familiar with his life of crime and perhaps think he's causing chaos somewhere or spending another night in jail. But when a day goes by and he still hasn't appeared, the women begin to worry. They head to his usual spots in case he's lying unconscious after a fight, but he's not there. They ask friends or people he was known to hang out with if they've been with him recently. They even go to the local police station to ask if he's been arrested, but no one's seen TJ. On the evening of May 15th, TJ is declared to be a missing person. The police open an investigation into TJ's disappearance. They release his picture to the public in the hope that someone will be able to provide them with a lead. Their prayers are quickly answered. Someone claims to have seen TJ in Eastview on the very day he disappeared, but he wasn't alone. They swear that he was with another person, a man of medium height, muscular, with short, dark hair and glasses. As a well-known criminal throughout Elizabethtown, police recognize the descriptions of Sherard. He's been in and out of jail a handful of times. He's called into the police station and announced as the primary suspect in the disappearance of TJ. If observations are to be believed, then Sherard was the last person to ever see him before he went missing. But Sherard refuses to cooperate when questioned. He swears that he wasn't with TJ on May 14th and repeatedly denies any association with the case. He paints TJ as a delinquent, thuggish youth who he would never want anything to do with. Although he's strongly suspected of being involved, the police simply do not have enough evidence to charge him. Without a body, all they have is the memory of an onlooker in Sherard's criminal reputation. He's released without charge, but it won't be long until explorers make a horrifying discovery that will shed new light on the mysterious disappearance of TJ. July 1989. A group of cavers arrive in Eastview, hoping to discover and map a new entry into the Saltpeter Cave. They're familiar with Eastview's network of caves and underground tunnels and are hoping that one of these will lead to Saltpeter. Equipped with hard hats, protective clothing, and flashlights to lead the way, the cavers squeeze through the first entry and begin their voyage. They follow the dark, crumbling route for a few minutes, using their flashlights to navigate as they crawl through the narrow, winding turns. After a short while, 
the tunnel becomes wider and light begins to seep in. They follow it until they stumble out into an expansive cave. The cave's spacious enough to stand up in, so they click off their flashlights and take a look around. Ahead of them is the wide open mouth, leading directly onto a dusty off-road track against a backdrop of fields. Surrounding them are crumbling rocks and fallen debris mixed with sand. Nearest to their concealed entrance is a long cylindrical roll of carpet. It's dusty and weathered, but has maintained a firm grip on whatever's hidden in the middle. With curiosity, the cavers gently unravel it, but nothing can prepare them for what they find. Lying face up at the center of the carpet's tight rolls is a dead body. Unknown to the explorers, they've just stumbled upon the very cave where Sherard and his friends discarded the body of TJ. The police are called and forensics crowd the cave to examine it. The cause of death is not immediately apparent. It's badly and unevenly decomposed. Some parts are skeletal while others display grotesque, nightmarish features. The tightly rolled carpet has done little to preserve the body as airs flowed freely through either end, speeding up the imbalanced process of decay. After close examinations, forensics discover two large bullet holes in the skull. They conclude that the victim was shot twice in the temple at an extremely close range with a 25 caliber gun. The body is carefully moved out of the cave and taken back to Elizabethtown where, after numerous attempts, forensic experts identify that body as that of TJ. Now that police have solved the young criminal's disappearance, they must focus their efforts on catching his killer. After cruelly ending the young life of TJ, Larry Sherrard resumed his usual activities. If the murder had affected him in any way, he doesn't show it. He continues dealing drugs, committing robberies, and leading street violence. And it doesn't take long for him to run into more trouble. In the fall of 1989, Sherrard finds himself in a disagreement with another drug dealer. It's not clear what the two men are arguing about or even who the dealer is, but once again, Sherrard loses his temper. He takes out his 25 caliber handgun and blasts it into the dealer's head. As with TJ's death, the shot is fired from an extremely close range and kills the dealer instantly. But this time, Sherrard doesn't have the luxury of being in an isolated location surrounded by loyal henchmen who can take care of the body. He's on a street in Elizabethtown where someone could walk by any second. Sherrard needs to act fast. Taking advantage of the early fall darkness and quiet streets, he leans the body against his shoulder and heaves it a few blocks to his house. If anyone was to see these two figures, they'd simply presume a man was helping a friend home who had consumed too much alcohol. When Sherrard reaches his house in East Railroad Avenue, he phones his friend, explains the situation, and asks him to come over. The friend willingly obeys. Perhaps he's one of the men who helped dispose of TJ's body a year ago. The two men set about hiding the corpse. They want to bury it fast before anyone realizes the dealer's missing. But without a car at their disposal, their options are severely limited. Then, Sherard has an idea. 
As a plumber, he has a wealth of tools and machinery on his property, including a backhoe. He uses it around his garden on a regular basis, so neighbors won't grow suspicious if they see him using it again. The men dig a hole in Sherard's garden with the backhoe and bury the body six feet underground. It's haunting to think that Sherard will live above the body of his second murder victim, but he's willing to do anything to once again escape justice. Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's best eggs. Only Eggland's best hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and six times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Months pass, and no one comes looking for the dead drug dealer. It's possible that in their preoccupation with the I-65 killer, police have overlooked the missing person case. The active serial killer has now taken the lives of three women and is infamous throughout Kentucky. So, a missing drug dealer simply doesn't garner as much attention as the murders of innocent women. But despite the police's ignorance of the crime, Sherard can never relax after the second murder. Perhaps it's because he's now a two-time killer, or maybe he's haunted by the dead man buried in his backyard. Whatever the reason, Sherard grows extremely paranoid. Neighbors watch him obsessively tend to his garden, He's always out with some machinery, digging holes or moving soil. But they think little of it. He's a plumber after all. They simply expect he's fixing a pipe or mending the water tank. No one has any idea of his crime. His brother even remarks on his constant paranoia one day, joking that he must have a dead body buried under the property. But despite his guilty conscience, Sherard manages to get into further trouble with the law and is arrested in the winter of 1989. Police records don't show what his crime was, but it's enough to get him locked up for seven years. This jail sentence will change the criminal Sherard. He'll vow to live a more honest life and abandon the violent world of drugs and felonies. April, 2013. 24 years have passed since Sherard's release from prison, and his life has changed drastically. He's now a 59-year-old man who lives a modest, simple existence as a retired plumber. He married late in life and has helped his wife bring up her only daughter, taking on parenting responsibilities as if she was his own child. Family is important to Sherard in this later chapter of his life. As well as raising his stepdaughter, he's close with his brother and sister-in-law. He lives close to them and enjoys spending time with his niece, Pamela. Sherard seems to have put his criminal life behind him. He no longer does drugs, has separated himself from old associates, and he's even sold his house on East Railroad Avenue. 
Sherard, it seems, has put as much distance between himself and his past as possible. But his new life is far from perfect. Since leaving prison, Sherard's mental state has begun to change. He finds himself overwhelmed with paranoia and constantly afraid that everyone he meets is out to get him. The once sociable Sherard finds himself withdrawing from people at every opportunity. After assessing his mental state, doctors diagnose him as susceptible to episodes of paranoid schizophrenia. In spite of this diagnosis, Sherard manages to live a relatively normal life. He takes medication that's successful in preventing the attacks and only experiences mild paranoia. But in the spring of 2013, his health takes a turn for the worse. His niece, Pamela, is visiting for the day. The two share a close bond and enjoy each other's company. As her uncle started experiencing health problems related to aging, Pamela's been happy to visit him more often. But today, something's not quite right with Sherard. His temper's short and irritable, and he seems distracted during his niece's visit. As she turns to kiss him goodbye, Sherard grabs her by the throat. He forces her to the wall and holds her against it, choking her neck and stopping all air from reaching her lungs. Pamela desperately wiggles in his grip, trying to peel his fingers from her neck and kick his heavy body away, but he doesn't move. Pamela's suffocating now. His grip is too strong for her and she can't get any oxygen in. But then, Sherard suddenly stops. He drops his hand and his niece falls to the ground, massaging her neck and gasping for air. Sherard falls to the ground with her, tears streaming down his face. He swears that it was a schizophrenic attack. He must have forgotten to take his medication that day. He promises he never intended to harm her. But although Pamela forgives him, no one can deny the violence that still lurks behind Sherard's elderly frame. A few weeks have passed since Sherard attacked his niece. As a devoted family man, he's been left shaken and ashamed in the wake of his actions. Perhaps realizing the guilty cause of his paranoia, he knows the time has come to confess. So Sherard takes his morning medication and walks a few blocks to his brother's house. He asks his brother and sister-in-law to sit down and listen patiently to what he has to say. With their attention secured, Sherard dives into his confession. He admits to the two murders he committed over 20 years ago, the Eastview shooting in 1988 and the anonymous drug dealer the following year. The couple are speechless. They can't believe what Sherard's just told them. They were aware of his criminal past, of course, but thought it simply covered drugs and theft. They had no idea that their brother was a two-time murderer. But the day after hearing his confession, Sherard's brother dies suddenly of a fatal heart attack. On his deathbed, he asks his wife to promise to take care of Larry Sherard. No one can know what Sherard's brother meant by his dying request. Perhaps he wanted his wife to tell the police about the crimes, or maybe he wanted her to protect him. His wife interpreted it as a promise of loyalty to Larry Sherard and never told a soul about the murders. Chapter 
February 2nd, 2014. Pamela sits at the foot of her uncle's bed in the Baptist Health Hospital, Elizabethtown. She's in shock at the words she heard moments ago. Words that transformed her frail, kindly uncle into a cold-blooded murderer. She perhaps has questions for him. Questions that could help her understand why he committed the murders. Although he provided her with detail on how he killed and buried the men, he hadn't explained why. The only reason he could offer his niece was a flippant remark that they screwed him on drugs. But seeing that Sherard is close to death, Pamela chooses to ignore her own burning questions and let him rest. Within a few hours, Larry Sherard has slipped into a coma from which he'll never wake up. Unlike her parents who were content to keep Sherard's murders a shameful family secret, Pamela is driven to confess. She calls the police just one week after her uncle's death and reports everything he told her. From the abduction, shooting, and burial of the first man in an Eastview cave, to the murder of the second dealer in his disturbing resting place under Sherard's old house. Almost instantly, an investigation begins. The police find that details of the first man's murder match the case of TJ. Sherard's confession places him in Eastview on the very day TJ disappeared. It also shows him to have been in possession of the murder weapon, a 25 caliber handgun. Details such as these, and the knowledge of shooting the victim twice in his temple and rolling the body in a carpet, could only have been known by someone who took part in the killing. But of course, TJ wasn't Sherard's only victim. After being informed of a body hidden under his old Railroad Avenue home, a huge excavation project begins in the spring of 2014. Archaeologists, detectives, builders, and police raid the site. The house itself has been torn down, but the land upon which the property once stood remains intact. Sniffer dogs and ground-penetrating radars are released onto the quarter acre once owned by Sherard. They upturn soil, dig meters underground, and carefully examine anything they find in case it has some relation to the dead man. Eventually, after a week of searching, archaeologists find two disturbed locations. In these areas, the soil is of a slightly different concentration. Moisture level has changed and the distribution of minerals is altered. Signs that a dead body may have been buried there. Further investigation finds that hidden in these areas, a minute cluster of bone fragments have been preserved. It's unclear whether they're remains of a human or animal, so police send them to a lab to determine their origin. Unfortunately, the results are never made public. Despite upturning the entire property, police never recover the body of the unnamed dealer. Perhaps Sherard's paranoia grew too much for him and he moved it from its original location. Or maybe the bone fragments are all that remains of the man. But despite their failure to retrieve a body, Elizabethtown police remain optimistic about the case. They're reassured by Pamela's certainty that Sherard did not act alone. His involvement with other criminals surely means that there are still people alive who know more details about what truly happened during the 1989 murder. Although police believe that Sherard killed TJ in May 1988, 
more evidence is needed for them to officially close the case. His deathbed confession was not given under oath. And when he was interviewed in connection to the murder back in the 80s, Sherard denied all involvement. The disappearance of TJ and murder of the anonymous dealer remain open to this day. Next week on Deathbed Confessions. We meet James Brewer, a man born and raised in the small town of Hohenwald, Tennessee. Someone who lives a quiet life, who hasn't had a single run-in with the law, but everyone has a breaking point. Buttons that, when pushed, can force them to make the kind of decisions that change lives or even end them. If the stories around town are to be believed, Brewer snapped, took another man's life, and then vanished without a trace. Secrets have a way of finding their way to the surface, though, and the dying words of a man called Michael Anderson, over three decades later, might finally answer that question that has plagued locals for years. Who really killed Jimmy Carroll? And whatever happened to James Brewer? Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Nicole Edmonds. Supervising editor, Kevin Pham. Sound design by Matias Torresole. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds-Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. 